Over a century ago, the Supreme Court ruled that states have the power to impose mandatory vaccinations during a pandemic. That case laid relatively dormant for over 100 years, but in the COVID era, it's making a comeback. Regulators have now trotted out the case to argue that they have the power to pretty much do anything short of vaccination to control a pandemic, and they say there's nothing courts can do about it. A closer look at that decision shows that it wasn't really the grant of power many assume it was. Indeed, the two dissenting justices were in the majority in a different case that term, Lochner versus New York, that is famous for limiting government power. It is so famous that the term Lochnerism is a sort of judicial boogeyman used to describe court opinions that purportedly overreach in striking down legislation. So how do we reconcile these two cases? One of which says the government can force you to get a vaccine, and the other of which says that states have limited power to regulate, even when regulating for public health. What do these cases tell us about what the Constitution has to say when a regulator walks into a pandemic? I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And this week on DIST, we're taking on Jacobson versus Massachusetts. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. At the dawn of the 20th century, a smallpox outbreak ravaged the Northeast, killing thousands. In response, Massachusetts told its citizens to get a vaccine. Enter Reverend Henning Jacobson, the OG anti-vaxxer. He refused to comply, claiming that he and his son in prior years had had a bad reaction to a vaccine, and so he feared the health consequences of taking one now. Reverend Jacobson was tried in court for violating the vaccine statute, and so he sued to challenge the requirement. In a 7-2 opinion, the first justice, John Marshall Harlan, known as a vigorous defender of individual rights, upheld this regulation. It is within the police power of a state, he said, to enact a compulsory vaccination law, and it is for the legislature and not for the courts to determine in the first instance whether vaccination is or is not the best mode for the prevention of smallpox and the protection of the public health. Being sure to give a nod to liberty, he said, even liberty itself, the greatest of all rights, is not unrestricted license to act according to one's will. That is, liberty doesn't include the act of harming others by exposing them to infection. The popular narrative is that Jacobson is a pretty broad grant of power. It defers to the government's assertion of what's necessary to protect the public and upholds the power to vaccinate, one of the most invasive things the government can do. Stick a needle in your arm. Perhaps that is why many assume if the government can vaccinate you, it can do basically anything short of that. The problem with that narrative is another case that term, called Lochner versus New York, basically came out the exact opposite way, with the Jacobson dissenters in the majority. What does Lochner mean? What does Jacobson mean? It's not what you think. Two cases about individual liberty. One says the government can stick a needle in your arm, but the other says limiting big shop hours is the real harm. The facts of Lochner are well known among us constitutional law nerds. And according to most tellings, the story goes something like this. I'm David Bernstein. I am university professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University in Arlington, Virginia. Professor Bernstein is the Lochner guy. He wrote the seminal book on the topic called Rehabilitating Lochner and has written several articles about Lochner and the so-called Lochner era. 
Well, basically, in Lochner versus New York, the Supreme Court held by a close five to four margin that uh, maximum hour laws for bakers, uh, saying that bakers couldn't work more than 10 hours a day, 60 hours a week, uh, were unconstitutional as a violation of liberty of contract. And it turns out that if you actually delve into the history of the case itself, which I did by looking at you know, the newspaper articles and so forth, at the time, it turns out there's a really interesting backstory. So Lochner, like I said, was a Bavarian immigrant. He had a small bakery. In the uh, early 1890s, a local union came to him and said, we really want you to unionize. And Lochner said, okay, I'm willing to do that. And they said, okay, the only thing is you have this guy working for you, Amon Schmitter, and he's living in your house and we don't allow that under union rules. Under union rules, workers aren't allowed to board with their employers. And Lochter said, well, he doesn't have anywhere else to go. He can't live with his parents. Not clear why, but he can't live with his parents. He has nowhere else to go. I'm not gonna kick him out. And the union said, well, then you can't be unionized. So that started a decade long battle between Lochner and the union where the union uh, once the hours law was in place, we're actually sort of spying on Lochner, trying to find someone working more than 60 hours a week in order to get him prosecuted. Eventually, after Lochner already had been prosecuted twice for this, the Bakers Association of New York was looking for uh, someone to challenge the law, and they got Lochner to challenge it. And the employee who filed the complaint was the same Admin Schmitter, who I learned also through newspaper articles had maintained a friendly relationship with Lochner the whole time. In an opinion by Justice Rufus Peckham, the court struck down the maximum hours law. Peckham wrote, There is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker. There is no contention that bakers as a class are not equal in intelligence and capacity to men in other trades or that they are not able to assert their rights and care for themselves without the protecting arm of the state. They are in no sense wards of the state. Though the government had claimed that the limitation was necessary to protect the public, Justice Peckham explained, the mere assertion that the subject relates, though, but in a remote degree to the public health, does not necessarily render the enactment valid. The act must have a more direct relation as a means to an end, and the end itself must be appropriate and legitimate before an act can be held to be valid. While Jacobson versus Massachusetts was relatively unknown until COVID-19 arose, Lochner versus New York is famous, or rather infamous. When people say the name, it's almost like you can hear the derision in their voice. And that derision is based on the perception that the court in Lochner acted inappropriately. Rather than deferring to the legislature's policy determinations, critics say, the court imposed its own policy preferences, all in the name of some unenumerated right. That is, a right that's not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. No Supreme Court nominee is ever asked their opinion about Jacobson, even though it involves one of the most invasive actions government can take. Yet Supreme Court nominees are frequently asked about Lochner. It came up at John Roberts' confirmation hearing. You go to a case like the Lochner case. You can read that opinion today, and it's quite clear that they're not interpreting the law. They're making the law. The judgment is right there. As well as Amy Coney Barrett's. To hold such a statute that did the opposite of your policy preference 
unconstitutional because it didn't comport with your idea of the best economic policy would be to thwart the will of the people without warrant in the Constitution. And famously at doomed SCOTUS nom, Robert Borks. We should remind ourselves that there was a time when the word liberty in the 14th Amendment was used by judges to strike down social reform legislation. They struck down minimum wage laws in the name of liberty. They struck down laws in the Lochner case, law regulating the hours that bakers could work. The justices even often jab at each other in Supreme Court opinions, accusing each other of Lochnerism. As Professor Josh Blackman said, perhaps the biggest insult Scalia could hurl was to allege a justice of propelling us back to the Lochner era. The disgust for Lochner is bipartisan. Those who favor regulation see it as unduly interfering with economic legislation. Others see it as an expansive reading of the Constitution to include rights that are not found in the text. So how do we resolve these ostensibly conflicting cases? One decided just days before the next was heard would say on the one hand that the government can forcibly vaccinate you, and on the other hand that the government can't limit how much time a baker bakes. Maybe both have become caricatures of themselves over time. Maybe neither means what you think it means. What does Lochner mean? What does Jacobson mean? It's not what you think. Let's start with Lochner. We asked Professor Bernstein what people get wrong about it. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Uh, This could take all day. But we only have 35 minutes. The first thing that people get wrong is that they say that the opinion was a quote-unquote laissez-faire opinion, that basically the Supreme Court was not willing to countenance uh, any economic regulation. That's just false. First of all, Lochner itself was something of an outlier in the sense that the Supreme Court was mostly upholding labor laws and other Uh, forms of progressive legislation at the time. Uh, But secondly, the court was quite explicit that uh, legislation within the police power, legislation that was actually uh, intended to protect health and safety was constitutional. And it was only the fact that this hours law didn't seem to have any uh, demonstrated relationship to the public health and safety or the safety of workers themselves that led them to uh, invalidate it. In fact, the law in question was a very broad law that regulated bakeries in general that had all sorts of health rules, how tall the ceilings had to be, uh, regulations about not having animals and very sanitary regulations. And no one even bothered to question those aspects of the law because everyone knew that the courts would have upheld that. And the second thing people get wrong is that they think that the court was anti-worker and pro-big business. The Lochner case itself involved a small bakery owned by Joseph Lochner, Bavarian immigrant. He only had uh, one or two employees. Um, and uh, the big bakeries, if anything, were in favor of the hours legislation because they were unionized and already had those hours regulations. So as in many cases throughout history with regulations, it wasn't really worker versus big businesses. It was bigger businesses versus smaller businesses, businesses that could easily comply with the regulation against those who couldn't, and also unionized workers versus non-unionized workers. People tend to see the case as a big bakery owner wanting to exploit his worker. But it's important to note that the baker wanted to work more hours. It was a consensual, mutually beneficial transaction for the employee and employer. So he wasn't being, you know, slave labored into, you know, a 90-hour work week. He worked his 60 hours and then he wanted to stay overtime just to learn a new trade to make himself a more valuable employee. So certainly 
both with the underlying facts, if you know the background, but even just the facts presented to the court, this was not a case of you know some company town where people are being have no other place to go and they're working 90, 100 hours a week. This was really uh, uh, a, a small baker who had uh, who had no greater market power than his employees did. Another issue in Lochner was that Lochner's lawyer presented a an appendix to the brief showing evidence that hours laws are not related to the public health, that bakers uh, without hours laws were not any less healthy than a lot of other really standard professions, whereas the state of New York didn't present any contrary evidence. So the only evidence the court had was that this wasn't relevant to safety. This gets confused when people read the opinions because Peckham asserts that there is no relationship between this and public health, but he doesn't cite anything. So people think he just made that up when it's Ryan Lochner's brief. On the other hand, Justice Harlan in dissent cites a bunch of studies saying, suggesting that bakers are unhealth, unhealthy, uh, and so he seems to have the evidence, but none of the evidence that Justice Harlan cites is in the brief. And if you look up one of the sources he cites, it's from 1750 or so. So it wasn't exactly the most current scientific evidence. Another important factor was that the law was a criminal statute. It's very unusual to have labor laws enforced by criminal uh, penalties. So I think that made the justice take it more seriously. In other words, despite all the Lochner fear-mongering, it's a pretty mellow decision. Justice Peckham just didn't think the evidence was there that this law was needed. Lochner doesn't mean that the government can't do anything to regulate for the protection of public health or safety, or that courts are empowered to strike down laws that contradict their policy preferences. It means the government has to act reasonably, and courts must take their role of holding the government to its limits seriously. What does Jacobson mean? It's not what you think. And what about Jacobson? Does it mean what everyone says it means? One very important fact that gets left out of the narrative is that the law in Jacobson wasn't actually mandatory at all, at least in the sense that nobody could be held down and forced to get a vaccine. The law actually said, get a vaccine or pay $5. Here's Professor Bernstein. So the first thing we have to recognize about Jacobson is that people cited now as saying the government can require you to get vaccinated and basically, therefore, anything the government does uh, for public health reasons, even invading your personal body space, is constitutional. Well, that's not correct because uh, Jacobson did not actually require you to get vaccinated. It had you pay a civil fine if you did not get vaccinated. And while, you know, some people might think, well, that's a distinction without much of a difference. It is a big difference, right? If someone really has religious or paranoid or real health concerns about the vaccine, they didn't have to do it. So it might have been a different case uh, if it was actually truly mandatory vaccination where you know, they'd actually hold you down and vaccinate you or put you in jail. Here's a certain fire hose of ideas who had a lot to say on the topic. Okay, my name is uh, Richard A. Epstein. I'm uh, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU. I'm the Peter and Kristen Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. You forgot superstar, too, is, is one of your titles. So in Jacobson, it was a $5 fine for not taking the vaccine. And, you know, you could pay that. Suppose it was a 10-year punishment. 
Would you really want to put this guy in jail? Or worse, could you say, since this is a paternalistic statute, uh, not only will we say that the vaccines were subject to a fine or imprisonment, we will have specific performance. We will tie you down and stick this stuff in your arm uh, so that you can't breathe. And so Jacobson has always been read as a kind of a plenary statement, but in fact, it could be read much more narrowly as dealing with the fine. And in modern times, there's no question that if the balancing of interests were done, it would be done on a more particularistic basis. And I don't think you could pass a vaccination statute today, which did not allow people to get out if they made a credible demonstration that the vaccine would be likely to kill them. It's also important to note Justice Harlan goes out of his way to say that while the Massachusetts statute passed constitutional muster, his opinion should not be understood as granting carte blanche to the government. Harlan wrote, It might be that an acknowledged power of a local community to protect itself against an epidemic threatening the safety of all might be exercised in particular circumstances and in reference to particular persons in such an arbitrary, unreasonable manner or might go so far beyond what was reasonably required for the safety of the public as to authorize or compel the courts to interfere for the protection of such persons. In fact, he goes out of his way to make the same point twice. Before closing this opinion, he says, we deem it appropriate in order to prevent misapprehension as to our views to observe, perhaps to repeat a thought already sufficiently expressed, namely that the police power of a state may be exerted in such circumstances or by regulations so arbitrary and oppressive in particular cases as to justify the interference of the courts to prevent wrong and oppression. Justice Harlan just didn't think it was so arbitrary or oppressive to justify interference in this case. He seems to agree with Justice Peckham on the standard. According to Professor Epstein, all you have to do is look at Justice Harlan's other opinions to understand that Jacobson simply could not have meant that the government can do anything. His earliest opinion on this stuff had to do with the oleomargarine cases. I don't know if you're familiar with them, in which what the state legislature, which was heavily under the influence of dairy interest, decided that oleomargarine products had to be kind of painted a puke green so that everybody would find them nauseous when they did it. For the record, I think it was pink. And he held that this differentiation to protect against product confusion was permissible health legislation under the police power. Uh, Most people would start to say, no, you're you're really not quite right about this one. It looks much more anti-competitive. There are all sorts of less restrictive ways in which you could have product differentiation without making one of the products essentially inedible. And, And then there was another case called Muggler Against Kansas. And the issue was whether you could shut down various kinds of breweries on the grounds that you were dealing with something which was a public health menace, i.e. the distribution of alcohol. And he sort of sustained that one as well, even though other people said, look, if you're worried about the welfare of the citizens of Kansas, there's no reason why you can't make and export the stuff. And there's no reason why instead of putting the limitations on the manufacture of it, you don't put it on bars uh, and on retail establishment. They can't sell it to kids under 14. The bars have to shut at two o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. So he got a lot of criticism for that decision. And so he tended to give health a fairly broad meaning. But he also gave liberty a very broad meaning, and it's important to see the interaction between the two. Uh, So his most famous opinion on the liberty side, which is after the situation that you had in Jacobson, was a case called the Dare Against the United States. It's a 1908 decision. And what this particular opinion held is that it was unconstitutional uh, for the federal government Uh, to require firms that were 
dealing with interstate railroad traffic to compuls- to bargain with their workers under a collective bargaining agreement. He just fatly said that this kind of coercion and this sort of a labor market is utterly impermissible and there's no health issue involved in this particular case. And so what you had to do is to then think of what was the appropriate scope of economic regulation and Harlan throughout this period was a pretty consistent supporter of the antitrust laws to the extent that it dealt with monopolies and indeed in, in 1908, the same year that he decided the decision in Adair, he also joined with Justice Holmes, I believe it was, or the Chief Justice actually at that time, in a case called Lowe v. Lawler, which applied the antitrust laws um, in their full savagery to labor organizations and eventually bankrupted some of them in what was known as the Danbury Haddestripe at the time. And so if it actually was persuaded to him that health was not involved in this case, it's very strong with respect to liberty, but he had a very broad definition of what counted as health. Here's more from Professor Bernstein about Jacobson and Lochner. But I think it's fair to say that they both operate from the same premise, which the standard is as police power. Is there sufficient evidence of health and safety uh, um, implications of the relevant law? And the real difference between the opinions is that Harlan is much more deferential to the government when the government says we have a health and safety issue here than Peckham is. Peckham says basically the burdens on the government to show that there is a proper health and safety uh, thing here. And Harlan says, no, uh, the burden is on uh, the plaintiff to refute that there is public health and safety here. So in any event, but they all agree that the police power is a standard of something is not reasonable reasonably related to a proper government interest in the police power is unconstitutional. So in that sense, Jacobson's the same. In sum, Jacobson, like Lochner, means simply that the government must be reasonable. They differ in their level of deference and who carries the burden, but they shouldn't be understood as imposing diametrically opposed radical standards. What does Lochner mean? What does Jacobson mean? It's not what you think. You may ask, should the government have more power during a public health emergency? We asked someone who knows a little bit about government exercises of power during emergencies. Why not change the standard during a pandemic? Uh, Sure. So I'm Steve Vladek. I am the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law, which is just a fancy way of saying that I teach con law and fed courts uh, here in Austin. He's being humble. Professor Vladek is widely recognized as an expert in federal courts, constitutional law, and national security law. You've probably seen him on CNN, and he's argued at the Supreme Court. Why not impose a different or more lax level of judicial scrutiny during an emergency? Well, I I mean, I think there are a couple of different reasons. I mean, I think the first is um, emergencies are, of course, often a deeply subjective idea. Um, And so the notion that it will always be clear where the trigger is and when we're on one side of the line versus another, I think is belied by history. Um, Emergencies tend not to be transitory. Um, And as Justice Jackson warned in his concurring opinion in the Youngstown case in 1952, um, emergency power tends to beget emergencies. Um, So, you know, I think the sort of the the first and most important reason is just because um, once you draw a line like that, you are actually creating the circumstances where you're incentivizing emergencies, um, which just as a matter of public policy, I would prefer to be sort of the exception, not the rule. I second that preference. The, the second reason I think this goes to something that Lindsay Wiley and I 
wrote about over the summer um, in the Harvard Law Review is that um, the sort of the, the the arguments in favor of more deferential review um, tend to focus on the notion that the government needs to be able to do things in emergencies that it can't do in regular times. Um, and I guess I just I often find that argument lacking for evidence that especially as constitutional law in the latter part of the 20th century moved increasingly toward what we today call proportionality review, where we are you know, basically measuring the sort of extent to which the government's stated interest is proportional to what it's actually doing. It seems to me that if you have a really serious emergency, the government's actually going to have a pretty good time, a pretty easy time um, satisfying proportionality review. Um, right. That, you know, I think the two big pillars are one, emergency power tends to get emergencies. And two, you know, if the government has a good enough reason, that reason, it may be emergency specific, but that's an argument for why they satisfy a standard review, not for why the standard review ought to be different. I really liked the way that you put it in the article. Um, you talk about proportionality, but I guess another way of maybe interpreting Jacobson and some of these other cases is uh, establishing a reasonableness, reasonableness mm-hmm. test. And so what the government's really asking for if it's asking for something different, is essentially for the right to be unreasonable. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. We also asked Professor Bernstein, what's so wrong with being more deferential to the government, particularly during an emergency? And he noted that Jacobson, when interpreted broadly, was cited to justify some rather heinous government action, including the case that gave us the shameful line, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Here's Bernie. But Jacobson then gets relied upon by Holmes and Buck v. Bell, the case upholding mandatory sterilization for eugenics purposes. And he said that if the government uh, can force you to get uh, injected, why not this? Even worse, uh, Holmes had been a Civil War veteran and he had been wounded three times during the war and clearly saw a lot of horror during the war, like I said, made him somewhat misanthropic and very distrustful of, of human nature. And he also says, if the government can uh, vaccinate you and prohibit you from doing this and doing that, and can even send you off to war and die, basically, why can't it cut your fallopian tubes? Despite that Jacobson was literally cited to justify forced sterilization, Lochner gets all the hate. As Professor Epstein notes, it's sometimes compared to Plessy or Korematsu. But those cases are different in kind. This is, I mean, it's a genuine intellectual horror story. Uh, and indeed, I gave a speech, I guess, a couple of years ago to the Federalist Society, in which when uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts dissented in the homosexual rights cases, right, uh, uh, he basically said, these are Lochner. And he thought that Lochner was on a par with uh, Korematsu and with Plessy v. Ferguson. And I regard that claim as just simply preposterous. Uh, If you start looking at Plessy v. Ferguson, nobody's going to say, ah, the real vice in that particular case is that segregation was ordered by courts, and now what you really want to do is to order it by legislation, and then we'll defer to the legislation after it's done. Nobody said that it cured that. What it was is that these things were substantively wrong. So the question to ask Chief Justice Roberts, suppose the state, decided to repeal its minimum wage law. Should we regard that as a horror, uh, like segregation and forced confiscation of minority groups for no reason? No, you say it's a return to competitive market. So Lochner essentially is an argument saying it's the wrong institution doing this. And the other kinds of cases that I'm referring to are cases saying this is evil no matter who does it. You can't treat those two things as though they're the same. I mean, why is it that you start to think these things to be comparable? It's because you have 
in constitutional law kind of agnosticism in certain cases that we have to decide the merits of a case without knowing anything about the private arrangements that are being disrupted or supported. I strongly reject that view. And I think that once you understand what the substantive law is about, you'd realize that some of these statutes, like the overtime statutes and so forth, are really quite crazy in the way in which they start to work. And so this whole thing, I think, is a great intellectual tragedy. And the reason it's so powerful is that the conservative voices who should know better, Chief Justice Roberts, the late Anthony Scalia and so forth, they were all unified in their denunciation of Lochner, uh, but they never once fully understood the substantive implications of what they were doing. Or they never even realized that, you know, yes, we certainly can say that you can't regulate wages or hours. That doesn't mean we can't prevent you from having asbestos fabrics all over a workplace, because that would clearly fall within the health and safety kind of an exception. You know we had to get at least one Richard Epstein rant in there. What's shocking is that, despite the relatively favorable treatment of Jacobson through history and the derision shown to Lochner, during this pandemic, some judges have been employing rather Lochner-esque language and shying away from Jacobson's deference. In an opinion last fall, a district court judge in Pennsylvania struck down the Commonwealth's order closing certain non-essential businesses, finding that it was arbitrary and irrational in violation of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court cited a case decided in the Lochner era, which said that the right to earn a living is the very essence of the personal freedom and opportunity that the 14th Amendment was meant to protect. And while well-intentioned, regulators did not have any clear standard about what constituted an essential business had changed the list of life-sustaining businesses 10 times in two months, and also excluded from the list businesses that sold the very same products as those that were included. And this past winter, a judge struck down a San Diego restriction on strip clubs. Listeners should know Elizabeth is clutching her pearls. It's true. The judge noted that strip clubs, which included a restaurant on the premises, quote, provide sustenance to and enliven the spirits of the community while providing employers and employees with means to put food on the table and secure shelter, clothing, medical care, education, and of course, peace of mind for they and their families. That language far more closely mirrors Lochner than Jacobson. As an economic liberty attorney who routinely experiences judges deferring to government power, it's been shockingly pleasant to see the revival of courts taking seriously the right to earn a living, and under circumstances that people would least expect it. Here's Professor Epstein's theory on why Lochner is having a comeback. The reason why people are coming back to the Lochner kind language of freedom, as opposed to the Jacobson language of the sort of plenary nature of the police power, is that people are getting very nervous about what they regard as an overreach of government, not only with respect to vaccination, but with respect to various isolation, quarantine provisions, and so forth, the limitations on religious organizations, the union power to close down schools even when vaccines are available to teachers and the risk are relatively small to them. All of these issues are starting to call into question real bedrock elements of the modern system, collective bargaining, police power controls on all of these things, and of course, uh, the Jacobson opinion itself. It might even be said that the Supreme Court, too, is backing away from Jacobson and engaging more seriously with the validity of COVID measures. But sometimes it can be hard to tell. I think it's interesting that at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts, cited Jacobson. And then in the most recent opinion, it was 
you know, sometime last week, a COVID opinion, no, no citation to Jacobson. It seems like even the Supreme Court's sort of retreating from Jacobson. You know, I, I think the chief was, the chief was, I think, nodding to a heck of a lot of lower court opinions that have actually spent a lot of time on Jacobson, um, for better or for worse. And, you know, Jacobson has been, I think, much discussed, but little understood by a lot of these lower court decisions. Um where a bunch of lower courts have just sort of cryptically analyzed and said, of course it stands for this proposition, or of course it doesn't stand for this proposition. And I actually think you really have to put Jacobson in context to understand what it does and doesn't establish and why I think part of it's good law, but not in a way that really matters that much today. Um, so, you know, I, I think the chief is part of that. I think the chief is one of those who actually is inclined, all things being equal, to defer to a degree um, to government in a public health emergency. Um, but of course, then the question is, why only in a public health emergency? And Jacobson doesn't answer that question, uh, right? I mean, there's there's nothing in Justice Harlan's opinion that actually provides any kind of detailed argument for why public health emergencies are in any way different from any other government exigency, um, right? That, you know, the, the closest he gets is to talking about how if you don't vaccinate the entire population, you'd put at risk you know, other people. But of course, there are lots of ways in which that argument could be extrapolated in other contexts. So I guess I just think courts are really not taking Jacobson seriously um, and are using it either to support the point they want to make or they're dismissing it insofar as they think it gets in the way of the point they want to make. And the answer, I think, is a lot more nuanced. Here's Professor Epstein. The chief justice has changed his own mind on these questions in the last year, uh, from being relatively sympathetic to health claims to being relatively non-sympathetic. And I think the key driver for him is twofold. One is he's starting to persuade himself that the scientific evidence that these things are not mortal perils has gotten stronger, and also the discriminatory side of this thing. Uh, that is, you're really targeting certain organizations and not targeting others' organizations, and nobody can figure out how this crazy quilt is put together. So, mandatory vaccinations? Not so clearly constitutional after all. But that leaves the question, are they a good idea? And here we mean actual, real, mandatory vaccinations, with some high penalty or even possible imprisonment. And so we don't get deplatformed for being anti-vaxxers. I want to put it on the record that Anastasia and I are both very pro-vaccine. In fact, I'm known in my office as being a pusher of vaccines. Indeed, we are all about vaccines, but that's separate from the question of whether they should be government imposed. Professor Epstein had some thoughts on this. It's a terrible idea. There's no need to do it. If the vaccine is effective, you don't care whether your neighbor gets it or not. If there's imperfect protection, you care a little bit. Uh, but if you get the critical mass down, uh, it's not going to be very much of a problem. And self-help by staying out of certain dangerous places is not a bad idea even after this. One of the things that's so frightening, when I look around every institution that I've been associated with, whether or not you're vaccinated, the same mass requirements, temperature testing requirements are imposed upon you anyhow. And so people are going to start to ask, why should I get vaccinated at some modest risk? if I don't get any greater degree of social mobility. So I think what you really have to do is to get public health officials to be a little bit more sensitive to the fact that changes in risk levels, either by way of giving exposures to other people or getting some other exposure, if both of those things start to go down, then maybe you want to ease up a bit on these restrictions. We won't know for sure whether mandatory vaccinations are constitutional unless and until the Supreme Court rules on the issue. And if that case comes before the court, we hope the government remembers. 
Lochner and Jacobson don't mean what you think they mean. Thanks for listening to Dist. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out Dist. Am I allowed to sing? Singing is welcome. Yes. All right. Just so long as I sing the party line, right? I mean, why couldn't people in the early 20th century talk like us today? Come on, guys. So you think that they should accept my cert petition when it gets there? (laughs) Obviously. If we were at my house, you could, I would uh, lift up my Justice Peckham autograph at this point. (laughs) I I have one of those too. Do you? gave it to me. Oh, that's a great (laughs) gift. Yeah, that's... uh, yeah, it's it's treasure to me. It, it was shocking to me. Yeah, like more people should want this, but you know, <laughs> consider the source. How about just take out that second, the bread thing. Take out the second. Oh, I like the, the part one. about the bread, healthy bread. Cool. Me too, but the first one is like the actual legal reasoning. <laughs> I mean, who cares about the second the part's just being? Who just cares about the legal reasoning? Boy, I need some more titles. I think you could have one of mine for free. <laughs> And you've been, oh God, was I even speaking English just then? That was like crazy. I feel like I was just possessed by the ghost of Walker. <laughs> Tell your friends to pick up a set of disc knives. It's a descent that's so sharp you need a knife. What does Lochner mean? What does Jacobson mean? It's not what you think. Two cases about individual liberty. One says the government can stick a needle in your arm, but the other says limiting big shop hours is the real harm.